What is up, fine people of YouTube? Did you guys listen to the episode I did yesterday with David Gornoski? I like to make these live reading episodes a little bit timeless, so I try not to include too much that is specifically related to a given point in time. But I think that episode that I did with Gronoski, the conversation we had was pretty timeless. So if you haven't yet, go listen to it. Maybe by the time you're watching this video, I've done multiple conversations with David Gornoski, but uh, the most recent episode before this one, I had a fantastic conversation with the man, the myth, the legend himself. Um, of course, we had technical difficulties at the start because that is just, um, I don't know. It just seems like that keeps happening, especially with some of the most interesting episodes uh, that have maybe the most compelling message. I almost wonder if there's mm, particular influences that are uh, intervening to try to to keep certain messages from getting out. You might call me a conspiracy theorist. So today we are going to do, uh, we're going to continue this live reading series um, and specifically this series on uh, Father Seraphim Rose. So I kind of gave a, a little bio for him in the, uh, the first episode of the previous book that we did. It took us four episodes to get through it. That book was Nihilism, the Root of the Revolution of the Modern Age. Uh, this one here, so that, that one was written before this one. He wrote nihilism uh, when he was still a layman before um, uh, before he became clergy, and he wrote this one when uh, he was a hieromonk. So he'd already uh, he had already been ordained and uh, was was much further along in his journey as a as a, a Christian, soon to be, um, I would say probably soon to be glorified, canonized Christian. Um. And this book is much more in depth. Now, this one is one that I have not read yet. The last one I had read already. I'd read most of it, and uh, so I just I, I finished it in the the as the first couple of days as I was going through the first part of the book, I was finishing the last part of it. Uh, this one here I've never read, so I'm going into this one uh, completely fresh. You're going to get uh, um, just kind of an organic, in real time sort of reaction um, without me putting a whole lot of of previous thought or contemplation into it. Uh, so this will be interesting. Before I, I went and uh, planned to show this thing and then forgot to get it pulled up here. So let me pull it up while we're talking. Um, I don't have a, uh, a specific sponsor for uh, this episode. And I wanted to give a shout out to uh, one of my favorite suppliers of beard oil. This would be the All Merciful Savior Monastery uh, on Vashon Island in the Seattle area, which is the monastery where Abbot Trifon uh, currently lives. And one of the things that they do to support the, the monastery is they make beard oil. And I actually have some of this beard oil in my beard right now. I just put it on uh, about an hour ago. Let me see if I can get this screen share up and show it to you guys. All right, so this is this is the stuff here, and it's it is good stuff. So fifteen bucks gets you three different flavor or three different scents, three or three different bottles at least, and you can choose any of the scents you want. The ones that uh, have been my favorite thus far. Uh, so I've only ordered three. I ordered the 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 the, the uh, three bottle set once, and I got Bay Rum, which is my favorite. I got Long Bottom Leaf, and I got Sailor Sea. And it's in that order. Those are the, the the scents that I've preferred. Now, if you come down here, it actually gives you a description of what is in each of these and kind of what they smell like. So the Bay Rum is says spicy herbaceous classic with notes of citrus and vanilla and rum. I think the Bay Rum scent kind of everyone knows what the what the Bay Rum scent is, um, and that's exactly what it is. It's kind of a uh, a little uh, islandy kind of kind of uh, musky. Uh, it's got a got a sweet spiciness to it. Then um, the the Sailor Sea, I wasn't as big of a fan of. It's just kind of not the scent for me. I'm sure there's probably people that really like it. That one, it says, is uh, notes of lemon, bergamot, 
cool mint, lavender, green accord, sandalwood, cedarwood, amber, and musk. Um, to me, it's just kind of a little, maybe a little too musky. It just, uh, it's not my favorite. I don't, I wear it. It doesn't, uh, it's not so bad that I won't put it on, but I'll, I'll, I'll wear it. I'll enjoy it, but it's not my favorite. Um, long bottom leaf. That's what I've got on right now. Uh, this is inspired by hobbits and their holidays. The fragrance is a mix of bay leaf, fir needle, cedarwood, bergamot, and tobacco. Um, that one I really enjoy. And so then the, the blend that they use is olive oil, avocado oil, castor oil, and shea butter or argan oil. Um, it's just very simple, very simple little recipes, a lot of essential oils in here. Uh, and I've, I've found it phenomenal. Uh, smells great. Uh, very smooth, goes in great. Um, and then, uh, uh, you can also, if you just want to try out one at a time, then I think it's six bucks for a, for a single. Uh, I don't remember where it is exactly here. Beard and mustache care. Uh, yeah, they've also got mustache wax. Um, I haven't, I haven't used that. I don't, I'm not really a mustache wax guy, but we've got the beard oil here, uh, that you can get, you could just get one, try it out for six bucks, uh, which is, I mean, six bucks for a, for a quality thing, a beard oil that will last you. I mean, I don't use, I use the oil in my, my beard probably three times a week, maybe. And, um, it doesn't leave it feeling greasy or, um, sometimes it'll, you'll see it'll kind of, kind of accumulate like a little grittiness or something like that on it that, uh, I've gotten when I've just bought like stuff from target or whatever. Um, that stuff's full of all kinds of, of nasty stuff that you don't want in your, in your, on your skin or in your hair. Um, but this stuff here is fantastic. Very, very good. Um, highly recommend it. Smells great. The ones I've had so far, and I can't wait to order more particularly because you get to support a great, um, a great cause. You get to support this monastery, uh, with Abbot Trifon, who's just a, just a wonderful, beautiful man. Uh, they also have coffee. It looks like, um, so not to step on the toes of our, of our other sponsor here, but, um, I guess you could order some coffee from them if you wanted. Vashon Island is a beautiful, beautiful place. It's, um, it's a, actually a brilliant place to have a monastery because, it's not far at all from Seattle. It's, I think the, the ferry crossing is maybe 20 minutes to Seattle and 20, 30 minutes, something like that. So there's a lot of people who live on Vashon Island and commute into Seattle. The ferry will take you into, into the West Seattle area, and then you can drive into the city if you want. But Vashon is really, it feels really remote when you're out there. You, you're, it feels like you're way out on the, on the Kitsap Peninsula that's a lot further removed from civilization. Um, the majority of the island is is pretty wealthy and very bougie, very bougie Seattle type people. Um, so it's fantastic that there's this this little monastery just perched out there, um, full of men like Abbot Trifon. So um, that's the I wanted to give a shout out to these guys today. I was I was putting some of that beard oil on before uh, getting ready for the show and thought that I would I would shout them out give them a, a um, some of my appreciation. So if you, um, if you guys do uh, decide to order some, order some of this beard oil, let me know. I don't have a, a promo code. I don't have any relationship with them or anything. I just wanted to give them a shout out. So if you do order from them, let me know, just shoot me a message on Twitter or leave a comment in the, uh, in the, on the, on the YouTube stream here and, and let me know that you ordered some and uh, that'd be pretty cool. So uh, real quick, before I get started with this live reading, uh, just do me a favor as I'm, as I'm spinning the channel back up here and starting to, to roll out a lot more content, some interviews, some live readings, I'm probably going to do, uh, some type of just like a monologue show here in a little bit where I get some thoughts off out of my own head that I'm, I'm thinking about. Um, do me a favor, help me get back in, in with the algorithm, get back in the good graces here. Uh, just any interaction that you can do with the video is very helpful. So commenting in the live chat, um, liking the video, sharing the video, um, the longer that you watch the video, the longer that, that someone stays watching it, the, the algorithm likes that. So, um, even if you just leave it playing in the background and you don't even, you don't even watch it, I, that's good enough for me. Um, um, but yeah, uh, uh, commenting any, any type of comment that you can put on there. Um, tell me I got a big nose. Tell me my beard's ugly. Um, tell me you don't like my voice, whatever. I don't care. Uh, just tell me whatever you want. And, uh, uh that helps. So we've gotten a, a great response to this point with these, these live readings. The first one that I ever did was uh, reading through some of Mitch's Moldbug's writings. And uh, I've had a number of people who've told me that, they, that that's how they encountered the channel, was just searching for Moldbug. And they came across me doing the live reading, and that's how they started following the channel. 
So um, now I'm going to do this here with this, uh, with this, with this Seraphim Rose books. And we're we just finished nihilism. We're going to do orthodoxy in the religion of the future, which is like 250 pages, something like that. And then the next one will be Genesis creation and early man, which I think is like 450 pages. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think this format's pretty cool. And I've gotten a really good response from it. A lot of people have said they really appreciate it. The idea with this is for it to be sort of like an interactive audiobook. So if you're, uh, yeah, you can go find this book, you can get the audiobook, and you can just listen to it straight through if you want. You know, some people, like I can't, I have a hard time sitting down and reading a physical book. My brain has kind of gotten melted by uh, using phones and the, the fast paced modern life. And it's very difficult for me to just take a physical book and just sit down and not do anything else but read it. So whenever I'm quote unquote reading something, I'm always doing something else while I do it. I'm, I'm you know, uh, mowing, weed eating, uh, going for a walk. That's a big thing, walking with my dog. Um, I just sit there and listen to stuff the whole time. So I'm always active, always going, driving to the point where I almost can't listen to something if I'm sitting still. If I'm just sitting here at my desk and I try to put a video on or, or something, try to sit there and watch it and listen to it, my mind just starts. Um, so the idea here is to, is to, to provide a, a service kind of like that where I'm, I'm reading it so you can get the, the audio content of it. But it's more than just strictly an audio book because um, as I go, I'll, I'll interject some of my own thoughts, anything that comes up as I, as I go along or... Uh, sometimes some of these, especially I, I noticed in the last book, Father Seraphim had a very uh, kind of uh, complex, ornate writing style. He's not super pithy. So he'd get a lot of parenthetical thoughts within sentences and stuff. And sometimes it just feels like it's kind of bogging down. So I know if I'm listening to a book that reads like that, sometimes it gets hard to follow. And I just kind of start tuning it out and start thinking about other things and not realizing where the time has gone. Um, so... My goal is, is as I encounter those spots, sometimes I'll just stop and I'll kind of pick it apart and, and try to say, okay, this is, this is what he's actually saying. Here's what he's, here's the idea he's trying to get across, um, maybe a little more succinctly. Um, so anyways, all right, let's get started here. Um, hold on just a sec. I need to cough and, and get a drink and then we'll get going. Rocking the sweet tea, the H-E-B sweet tea. Um, one other thing I wanted to say, I almost almost forgot about this. One other thing I wanted to say, what's up, John MC? Appreciate you. Um, John MC, and, and one of the newest channel members here. You can also become a channel member. Um, the uh, Honestly, I don't really know how the memberships work all that well. I just, it asked me if I wanted to set it up and I said, yes. Um, so if you want to support the show, that's a great way you can do that. You can You can subscribe to the channel. Um, you can subscribe to the channel or you can even become a channel member. I think it's five bucks a month. Um, and then it, uh, you get a nifty little badge and you, uh, you can use a, um, some emojis, which reminds me, I need to get some different emojis up there for you guys to use. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, if you guys would, um, for those of you who are the, the praying sorts, my family would really appreciate your prayers. We've got a, a potentially large decision facing us and uh, we want to, um, we want to make sure we make the right decision and we want to go about the decision-making process the right way. So one of the things that, um, that we'd ask for you guys is to just pray for, pray for, pray for, pray for the decision, pray for our wisdom, um, pray that, uh, it works out the way it's supposed to. Uh, I'm not going to go into details on it right now. I'm just going to keep that private. Maybe you guys will find out, um, in the future what it was, but, uh, um, so I just entreat your prayers. Uh, it'd be much appreciated. Genesis creation and early man, John MC says is 709 pages. There you go. I was, I was halfway there. Um, so that one, I mean, we're probably going to be doing father Sarah from live readings for like the rest of the year, which doesn't bother me one bit. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. All right, let's get rocking and rolling here. So orthodoxy in the religion of the future by Hiram monk Seraphim Rose. And this one is printed by St. Herman of Alaska brotherhood. So the first printing here was April of 1975, and then the fourth printing, the revised edition, was March of 1979. So you can keep that in mind as we go through here. We're talking mid to late 70s is when um, when this is being written, when these when these thoughts are, are are coming to bear for Father Seraphim. 
And today I think we'll probably get through, we'll get through the preface and I hope the whole introduction. Um, we'll see, we'll see how fast, how, how quickly this reads and, and, and all that. So I think it's about 20 pages. How narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leadeth to life and few there are that find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. By their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and cast out devils in thy name, and done many miracles in thy name? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Everyone, therefore, that heareth these my words and doeth them shall be likened to a wise man that built his house upon a rock. That's Matthew 7, 14 to 16 and 21 to 14. 21, 21, 14, 14 to 21. I think it's probably 21, 14. Uh, it's interesting, this little passage right here. Have we not prophesied in thy name? So people who have prophesied in the name of Christ, people who have cast out devil, devils in the name of Christ. People who have done many miracles in the name of Christ. And he says, the, she says, he says, these people are, are those who work iniquity. So prophesying in the name of the Lord, casting out devils in the name of the Lord, and doing miracles in the name of the Lord uh, can qualify you under the banner of working iniquity. Preface. Every heresy has its own spirituality its own characteristic approach to the practical religious life. Thus, Roman Catholicism, until recently, had a clearly distinguished, distinguishable piety of its own, bound up with the sacred heart, the papacy, purgatory, and indulgences, the revelations of various mystics, and the like. And a careful Orthodox observer could detect in such aspects of modern Latin spirituality the practical results of the theological errors of Rome. Fundamentalist Protestantism, too, has its own approach to prayer, its typical hymns, its approach to spiritual revival. And in all of these can be detected the application to religious life of its fundamental errors in Christian doctrine. The present book is about the spirituality of ecumenism, the chief heresy of the 20th century. Until recently, it appeared that ecumenism was something so artificial, so syncretic, that it had no spirituality of its own. The liturgical agenda of, of ecumenical gatherings, both great and small, appeared to be no more than an elaborate Protestant Sunday service. But the very nature of the ecumenist heresy, the belief that there is no one visible church of Christ, that it is only now being formed, is such that it disposes the soul under its influence to certain spiritual, spiritual attitudes, which, in time, should produce a typical ecumenist piety and spirituality. In our day, this seems to be happening at last as the ecumenical attitude of religious expectancy and searching begins to be rewarded by the activity of a certain spirit, which gives religious satisfaction to the barren souls of the ecumenist wasteland and results in a characteristic piety which is no longer merely Protestant in tone. I wanted to flesh out one little thing here. He said that um, the very nature of the ecumenist heresy, so he's defining for us what the nature of the ecumenist heresy is. It's the belief that there is no one visible church of Christ, that it is only now being formed. <clears throat> this book was begun in 1971 with an examination of the latest ecumenical fashion, the opening of a dialogue with non-Christian religions. Four chapters on this subject were printed in the Orthodox Word on 1970, in 1971 and 1972, reporting chiefly on the events of the late 1960s up to early 1972. The last of these chapters was a detailed discussion of the charismatic revival, which had just then been taken up by several Orthodox priests in America. And this movement was described as a sort of ecumenical spirituality, inclusive of religious experiences, which are distinctly non-Christian. So this is, there's people who've talked about how the Orthodox Church is, is going to be infiltrated, is beginning to be infiltrated. He's talking about here back in the late 60s, early 70s, where Orthodox priests are beginning to be drawn away by ecumenism. Especially this last chapter aroused a great deal of interest among Orthodox people, and it helped persuade some not to take part in the charismatic movement. 
Others who had already participated in charismatic meetings left the movement and confirmed many of the conclusions of this article about it. Since then, the charismatic revival in Orthodox parishes in America, judging from Father Eusebius Stefano's periodical, The Logos, has entirely adopted the language and techniques of Protestant revivalism, and its unorthodox character has become clear to any serious observer. Despite the Protestant mentality of its promoters, however, the charismatic revival as a spiritual movement is definitely something more than Protestantism. The characterization of it in this article as a kind of Christian mediumism, which has been corroborated by a number of observers of it, links it to the new ecumenical spirituality, out of which is being born a new non-Christian religion. In the summer of 1974, one of the American monasteries of the Russian church outside of Russia, also known as Rokor, was visited by a young man who had been directed to one of its monks by the spirit who constantly attended him. During its brief, his brief visit, the story of this young man unfolded itself. He was from a conservative Protestant background, which he found spiritually barren, and he had been opened up to spiritual experiences by his Pentecostalist grandmother. The moment he touched a Bible she had given him, he received spiritual gifts. Most notably, he was attended by an invisible spirit who gave him precise instructions as to where to walk and drive and he was able at will to hypnotize others and cause them to levitate, a talent which he play playfully used to terrorize atheist acquaintances. Occasionally, he would doubt that his gifts were from God, but these doubts were overcome when he reflected on the fact that his spiritual barrenness had vanished, that his spiritual rebirth had been brought about by contact with the Bible, and that he seemed to be leading a very rich life of prayer and spirituality. Upon becoming acquainted with orthodoxy at this monastery, and especially after reading the article on the charismatic revival, he admitted that here he found the first thorough and clear explanation of his spiritual experiences. Most likely, he confessed, his spirit was an evil one. This realization, however, did not seem to touch his heart, and he left without being converted to orthodoxy. On his next visit two years later, this man revealed he had given up charismatic activities as too frightening and was now spiritually content with practicing Zen meditation. This close relationship between Christian and Eastern spiritual experiences is typical of the ecumenical spirituality of our days. For this second edition, much has been added concerning Eastern religious cults and their influence today, as well as concerning a major secular phenomenon, which is helping to form a new religious consciousness, even among non-religious people. None of these by itself, it may be, has a crucial significance in the spiritual makeup of contemporary man. But each one in its own way typifies the striving of men today to find a new spiritual path distinct from the Christianity of yesterday, and the sum of them together reveals a frightening unity of purpose whose final end seems just now to be looming above the horizon. He says this 50 plus years ago. Shortly after the publication of the article on the charismatic revival, the Orthodox Word received a letter from a respected Russian Orthodox ecclesiastical writer who is well-versed in Orthodox theological and spiritual literature, saying, what you have described here is the religion of the future, the religion of Antichrist. More and more, as this and similar forms of counterfeit spirituality take hold, even of nominal Orthodox Christians, one shudders to behold the deception into which spiritually unprepared Christians can fall. This book is a warning to them and to all trying to live a conscious Orthodox Christian life in a world possessed by unclean spirits. It is not an exhaustive treatment of this religion, which has not yet attained its final form, but rather a preliminary exploration of those spiritual tendencies which, it would indeed seem, are preparing the way for a true religion of anti-Christianity, a religion outwardly Christian, but centered upon a pagan initiation experience. Doesn't that ring true? Man. May this description of the increasingly evident and brazen activity of Satan, the prince of darkness, among Christians, inspire true Orthodox Christians with the fear of losing God's grace and turn them back to the pure sources of Christian life, the Holy Scriptures and the spiritual doctrine of the Holy Fathers of Orthodoxy. So here's your contents. So after, so the introduction is comprised of the dialogue with non-Christian religions, Christian and non-Christian ecumenism, the new age of the Holy Spirit, and the present book. Then you've got the first section, which is the monotheistic religions. Do we have the same God that non-Christians have? The second, uh, the second section is the power of the pagan gods, the assault upon Christianity, which is broken up into five sections. The attractions of Hinduism, a war of dogma. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. A war of dogma, 
Hindu places and practices, evangelizing the West, the goal of Hinduism, the universal religion. And then section three is, I don't know how to pronounce this. I'm going to say a fakir, a fakir's miracle and the prayer of Jesus. Section four, Eastern meditation invades Christianity, which is Christian yoga, Christian Zen, and transcendental meditation. Section five, the new religious consciousness, the spirit of the Eastern cults in the 1970s. Hare Krishna in San Francisco, Guru Maharaji in the Houston Astrodome, Tantric Yoga in the mountains of New Mexico, Zen training in Northern California, and the new spirituality versus Christianity. Section six, signs from heaven, an Orthodox Christian undertaking of unidentified flying objects, which then is broken up into the spirit of science fiction, UFO sightings and the scientific investigation of them, the six kinds of UFO encounters, explanation of the UFO phenomena, and the meaning of UFOs. Section seven, the charismatic revival as a sign of the times. The 20th century Pentecostal movement, the ecumenical spirit of the charismatic revival, speaking in tongues, Christian mediumism, spiritual deception, which is broken up into attitude towards spiritual experiences and physical accompaniments of charismatic experiences and spiritual gifts accompanying charismatic experiences and the new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Then there's section eight, which is the conclusion, the spirit of the last times. The charismatic revival is a sign of the times, which includes a Pentecost without Christ, the new Christianity, Jesus is coming soon, must orthodoxy join the apostasy, little children, it is the last hour, 1 John 2.18, and then the religion of the future. Lastly, you have the epilogue, which is towards the 1980s, Jonestown and the 1980s. Isn't that an interesting thing to read? Towards the 1980s. All right, here's the introduction. Let me grab another drink. John MC says Fakir is the right pronunciation. It's Arabic for a poor one, mendicant wandering mystic. Interesting. Thank you, sir. The dialogue with non-Christian religions. Ours is a spiritually unbalanced age when many Orthodox Christians find themselves tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Ephesians 4.14. The time indeed seems to have come when men will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they keep to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be inclined unto fables. 2 Timothy 4.3-4. One reads in bewilderment of the latest acts and pronouncements of the ecumenical movement. On the most sophisticated level, Orthodox theologians representing the American Standing Conference of Orthodox Bishops and other official Orthodox bodies conduct, bodies, bodies conduct? Is that a term? I haven't heard of that before. Let me read this again. On the most sophisticated level, Orthodox theologians representing the American Standing Conference of Orthodox Bishops and other official Orthodox bodies conduct learned, learned dialogues. There we go. So these bodies conduct learned dialogues with Roman Catholics and Protestants and issue joint statements on such subjects as the Eucharist, spirituality, and the like without even informing the heterodox that the Orthodox Church is the Church of Christ to which all are called, that only her mysteries are grace-giving, that Orthodox spirituality can be understand, understood only by those who know it and experience within the Orthodox Church, that all these dialogues and joint statements are an academic caricature of true Christian discourse, a discourse which has the salvation of souls at its aim. Indeed, many of the Orthodox participants in these dialogues know or suspect that there is no place for Orthodox witness, that the very atmosphere of ecumenical liberalism cancels out whatever truth might be spoken at them. But they are silent for the spirit of the times today is often greater than the voice of Orthodox conscience. He's got some references here. <coughs> I saw someone post recently something along the lines of, uh, I wonder what it would, what it would be like if, if Father Seraphim was on Twitter. Or maybe someone said that in the comments or something like that. I, I think this probably kind of gives you an idea of what he would be like. Um, this this paragraph probably fleshes that out pretty well. On a more popular level, ecumenical conferences and discussions are organized, often with an Orthodox speaker or even the celebration of an Orthodox liturgy. The approach to these conferences is often so dilettantish 
and the general attitude at them is so lacking in seriousness that rather than advance the unity their promoters desire, they actually serve to prove the existence of an impassable abyss between true orthodoxy and the ecumenical outlook. On the level of action, ecumenical activists take advantage of the fact that the intellectuals and theologians are irresolute and unrooted in orthodox tr tradition, and use their very words concerning fundamental agreement on sacramental and dogmatic points as an excuse for flamboyant ecumenical acts, not excluding the giving of Holy Communion to heretics. And this state of confusion in turn gives an opportunity for ecumenical ideologists on the most popular level to issue empty pronouncements that reduce basic theological issues to the level of cheap comedy. As when Patriarch Athenagoras allows himself to say, does your wife ever ask you how much salt she should put in the food? Certainly not. She has the infallibility. Let the Pope have it too if he wishes. From the Hellenic Chronicle, April 9, 1970. The informed and conscious Orthodox Christian may well ask, where will it all end? Is there no limit to the betrayal, the denaturement, the self-liquidation of orthodoxy? It has not yet been too carefully observed where all this is leading, but logically the path is clear. The ideology behind ecumenism, which has inspired such ecumenistic acts and pronouncements as the above, is an already well-defined heresy. The Church of Christ does not exist. No one has the truth. The Church is only now being built. But what it takes little reflection to see that the self- but it takes little reflection to see that the self-liquidation of orthodoxy of the Church of Christ is simultaneously the self-liquidation of Christianity itself. That if no one church is the Church of Christ, then the combination of all sects will not be the Church either, not in the sense in which Christ founded it. And if all Christian bodies are relative to each other, then all of them together are relative to other religious bodies, and Christian ecumenism can only end in a syncretic world religion. There's a very powerful observation he makes here. That if um, if no one church is the Church of Christ, then the combination of all churches is not going to be the church either, because you're starting from the premise that there is no one Church of Christ. So whether that one Church of Christ is comprised of a single denomination or a whole bunch of denominations, from the perspective of a Protestant or an ecumenist, it's self-defeating. It doesn't make any sense. And just the same, if all these Christian bodies, even if you're expanding out of denominations and you're using this kind of Christian perennialism, that all these Christian bodies are all, they're all uh, journeying up the mountainside. They're just taking different paths to get there. Well, then if you apply that to all religious bodies together, you're going to get the exact same thing. There's no reason to be Christian. If we're all headed to the same mountaintop, there's no reason to be Christian. If all Christians are headed to the same mountaintop, then there's no reason to be Orthodox. Just be whatever you want. There's a a fast you'll 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 see this pattern in so many places where the same th where everything and nothing is the same thing. If everyone is Christian, I guess this is not a not a, not a great example. Um, if if what was an example I encountered just recently? Um, if oh, there was one I had just the other day. I was thinking about this, where um, if all oh, it'll it'll come to me, I'll I'll think of it later. But you'll see this 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 pattern where um, where everything and nothing are are functionally the same thing. Like here's a simple example: if everyone is special, no one is special. Being special necessarily implies that some people aren't special. That just is how it is. Um, if everyone is brilliant. If everyone has the best ideas, then nobody has the best ideas. To have, there there has to be a differentiation. There has to be a, a, a hierarchy. There has to be a a, a point of, um, of non-equality. Trying to make everyone equal will make no one equal. This is indeed the undisguised aim of the Masonic ideology, which has inspired the ecumenical movement. And this ideology has now taken such possession of those who participate in the ecumenical movement that dialogue and eventual union with the non-Christian religions have come to be the logical next step for today's denatured Christianity. The following are a few of the many recent examples that could be given that point the way to an ecumenical future outside of Christianity. Number one, on June 27, 1965, a convocation of religion for world peace was held in San Francisco in connection with the 20th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations in that city. Before 10,000 spectators, there were, at, there were addresses on the religious foundation of world peace 
by Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox representatives, and hymns of all faith were sung by a 2,000-voice interfaith choir. Number two, the Greek Archdiocese of North and South America, in the official statement of its 19th Clergy Laity Congress in Athens, July of 1968, declared, we believe that the ecumenical movement, even though it is of Christian origin, must become a movement of all religions reaching towards each other. Number three, the Temple of Understanding, Inc., an American foundation established in 1960 as a kind of association of united religions with the aim of building the symbolic temple in various parts of the world, precisely in accord with the doctrine of Freemasonry, has held several summit conferences. I would, I don't even have to go look to see who the funding and ideological backing was of something like the Association of United Religions or a Temple of Understanding, Inc., and you shouldn't have to either. If there's a question in your mind, you need to do a lot of reading, son. At the first, in Calcutta in 1968, the Latin Trappist Thomas Merton, who was accidentally electrocuted in Bangkok on the way back from this conference, declared, we are already a new unity. What we must regain is our original unity. At the second, in Geneva in April 1970, 80 representatives of 10 world religions met to discuss such topics as the project of the creation of a world community of religions. The General Secretary of the World Council of Churches, Dr. Eugene Carson Blake, delivered an address calling on the heads of all religions to unity. And on April 2, an unprecedented super-confessional prayer service took place in St. Peter's Cathedral, described by the Protestant pastor Babel, that's, a, that's an unfortunate name, Protestant pastor Babel as a very great date in the history of religions, at which everyone prayed in his own language and according to the customs of the religion which he represented, and at which the faithful of all religions were invited to coexist in the cult of the same God the service ending with the Our Father. Promotional material sent out by the Temple of Understanding reveals that Orthodox delegates were present at the second summit conference in the United States in the autumn of 1971, and that Metropolitan Emilianos of the Patriarchate of Constantinople is a member of the Temple's International Committee. The summit conferences offer Orthodox delegates the opportunity to enter discussions aiming to create a world community of religions, to hasten the realization of mankind's dream of peace and understanding. According to the philosophy of Vivekananda, Ramakrishna, Gandhi, Schweitzer, and the founders of various religions. And the delegates likewise participate in unprecedented super-confessional prayer services where everyone prays according to the customs of the religion he represents. One can only wonder what must be in the soul of an Orthodox Christian who participates in such conferences and prays together with Muslims, Jews, and pagans. Whew! Whew, hee Man, Father Seraphim did not mince words. Number four, early in 1970, the WCC sponsored a conference in Agiltown, Lebanon, between Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, and Muslims, and a follow-up conference of 23 WCC theologians in Zurich in June declared the need for dialogue with the non-Christian religions. At the meeting of the Central Committee of the WCC at Addis Ababa in January of this year, Metropolitan Georges Kodri of Beirut, Orthodox Church of Antioch, shocked even many Protestant delegates when he not merely called for dialogue with these religions, but left the Church of Christ far behind and trampled on 19 centuries of Christian tradition when he called on Christians to investigate the authentic, authentically spiritual life of the unbaptized and enrich their own experience with the riches of a universal religious community. Religious news service is for the, the source for that. For it is Christ alone, Christ alone who is received as light when grace visits a Brahmin, a Buddhist, or a Muslim reading his own scriptures. Ajaltun. Okay, thank you, John. Number five. The Central Committee of the World Council of Churches at its meeting in Addis Ababa in January 1971 gave its approval and encouragement to the holdings of meetings as regularly as possible between representatives of other religions, specifying that at the present stage, priority may be given to bilateral dialogues of a specific nature. In accordance with this directive, a major Christian-Muslim dialogue was set for mid-1972, involving some 40 representatives of both sides, including a number of Orthodox delegates. Number six. In February 1972, another unprecedented ecumenical event occurred in New York when, according to Archbishop Yakovos, 
of New York, for the first time in history, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Greek Archdiocese of North and South America, held an official theological dialogue with the Jews. In two days of discussions, definite results were achieved, which may be taken as symptomatic of the future results of the dialogue with non-Christian religions. The Greek theologians agreed to review their liturgical texts in terms of improving references to Jews and Judaism where they are found to be negative or hostile. Does not the intention of the dialogue become ever more obvious? To reform Orthodox Christianity in order to make it conformable to the religions of this world. These events were the beginning of the dialogue with non-Christian religions at the end of the decade of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s. In the years since, in the, in the years since then, such events have multiplied, and Christian and even Orthodox discussions and worship with representatives of non-Christian religions have come to be accepted as a normal part of contemporary life. The dialogue with non-Christian religions has become part of the intellectual fashion of the day. It represents the present stage of ecumenism and its glorious and its progress toward a universal religious syncretism. Let us now look at the theology and the goal of this accelerating dialogue and see how it differs from the Christian ecumenism that has prevailed up to now. Christians and non-Christian ecumenism. What's up, Cooper? What's up, Jonathan? I see you guys in there. Christian ecumenism, at its best, may be seen to represent a sincere and understandable error on the part of Protestants and Roman Catholics. The error of failing to recognize that the visible Church of Christ already exists and that they are outside it. The dialogue with non-Christian religions, however, is something quite different, representing rather a conscious departure from even that part of genuine Christian belief and awareness which some Catholics and Protestants retain. It is the product, not of simple human good intentions, but rather of a diabolical suggestion that can capture only those who have already departed so far from Christianity as to be virtual pagans, worshipers of the God of this world, Satan, and followers of whatever intellectual fashion this powerful God is capable of inspiring. Christian ecumenism relies for its support upon a vague but nonetheless real feeling of common Christianity, which is shared by many who do not think or feel too deeply about the church, and it aims somehow to build a church comprised comprising all such indifferent Christians. But what common support can the dialogue with non-Christians rely on? On what possible ground can there be any kind of unity, however loose, between Christians and those who do not mere and those who not merely do not know Christ, but, as is the case with all the present-day representatives of non-Christian religions who are in contact with Christianity, decisively reject Christ. Those who, like Metropolitan Georges Codry of Lebanon, lead the avant-garde of Orthodox apostates, a name that is fully justified when applied to those who radically fall away from the whole Orthodox Christian tradition, speak of the spiritual riches and authentic spiritual life of the non-Christian religions. But it is only by doing great violence to the meaning of words and by reading his own fantasies into other people's experience that he can bring himself to say that it is Christ and grace that pagans find in their scriptures, or that every martyr for the truth, every man persecuted for what he believes to be right, dies in communion with Christ. Certainly these people themselves, whether it be a Buddhist who sets fire to himself, a communist who dies for the cause in which he sincerely believes, or whomever, would never say that it is Christ they receive or die for. And the idea of an unconscious confession or reception of Christ is against the very nature of Christianity. If a rare non-Christian does claim to have experience of Christ, it can only be in the way in which Swami Vivekananda describes. Quote, we Hindus do not merely tolerate, we unite ourselves with every religion, praying in the mosque of the Mohammedan, worshiping before the fire of the Zoroastrian, and kneeling to the cross of the Christian. That is, as merely one of a number of equally valid spiritual experiences. No. Christ, no matter how redefined or reinterpreted, cannot be the common denominator of the dialogue with non-Christian religions, but at best can only be added as an afterthought to a unity which is discovered somewhere else. The only possible common denominator among all religions is the totally vague concept of the spiritual, which indeed offers religious liberals almost unbounded opportunity for nebulous theologizing. The address of Metropolitan Georges Codry to the Central Committee meeting of the WCC at Addis Ababa in January 1971 may be taken as an early experimental attempt to set forth such a spiritual theology of the dialogue with non-Christian religions. 
in raising the question as to whether Christianity is so inherently exclusive of other religions, as has generally been proclaimed up to now, the Metropolitan, apart from his few rather absurd projections of Christ in non-Christian religions, has one main point. It is the Holy Spirit, conceived as totally independent of Christ and his church, which is really the common denominator of all the world's religions. Referring to the prophecy that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, from Joel 2.28, the Metropolitan states, quote, This must be taken to mean a Pentecost, which is universal from the very first. The advent of the spirit in the world is not subordinated to the sun. The sun, the spirit operates and applies his energies in accordance with his own economy. And we could, from this angle, regard the non-Christian religions as points where his inspiration is at work. We must, he believes, develop an ecclesiology and a missiology in which the Holy Spirit occupies a supreme place. I've, I... I want to make comments here, but I have a feeling he's going to he's going to say anything I would say, but say it much better. So I'm just going to keep reading. All of this, of course, constitutes a heresy which denies the very nature of the Holy Trinity and has no aim but to undermine and destroy the whole idea and reality of the Church of Christ. Why indeed should Christ have established a church if the Holy Spirit acts quite independently, not only of the church, but of Christ himself? See there, he did it better than I was going to. Nonetheless, this heresy is here, still present rather tentatively and cautiously, no doubt with the aim of testing the response of other Orthodox theologians before proceeding more categorically. That's a very interesting uh, observation here. He's, he's saying that this is explicitly being stated rather tentatively and cautiously, so it's kind of like, let's just put it out there a little bit and then see what the response is. Put it out just a little bit and then wait. And if nobody really pushes back on us, then put it out a little bit more and then wait. And if nobody pushes back, do it a little bit more. And this is the same. This is the model. This is the lib model in general. Think of all of the, all of the, uh, the drag queen stuff now that began as little moves forward, little moves forward. We just want a little bit, just a little bit of freedom, just a little bit of extra. And if you don't push back at the front, Next thing you know, it's just a like a a, a tsunami because it comes roaring in once the, the the crack in the armor has been revealed. Uh, John says Georges, French version of George, pronounced in French manner Georges. French is very common second language language in Lebanon. Nice, I, I'm enjoying this. Uh, uh, learning these things as we go. I appreciate you, John. What's up, slow boy, right? slow boy whiteboard? In actual fact, however, the ecclesiology of the Holy Spirit already has already been written, and by an orthodox thinker that at that, one of the acknowledged prophets of the spiritual movement of our own day. Let us therefore examine his ideas in order to see the picture he gives of the nature and goal of the larger spiritual movement in which the dialogue with non non-Christian religions has its place the new age of the Holy Spirit. Nicholas Berdiev, 1874 to 1949, in any normal time would, have, would never have been regarded as an Orthodox Christian. He might best be described as a Gnostic humanist philosopher who drew his inspiration rather from Western sectarians and mystics than from any Orthodox sources. That he is called in some Orthodox circles, even to this day, an Orthodox philosopher or even theologian, is a sad reflection of the religious ignorance of our times. Here we shall quote from his writings. And it says, this is as cited in J. Gregerson, Nicholas Berdiev, prophet of a new age, Orthodox life, Jordanville, uh, where full references are given. <clears throat> Looking with this disdain upon the Orthodox fathers, upon the, quote, monastic ascetic spirit of historical orthodoxy, indeed upon that whole conservative Christianity which directs the spiritual forces of man only toward contrition and salvation, Berdyev sought rather the inward church, the church of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual view of life which in the 18th century found shelter in the Masonic lodges. The church, he believed, is still in a merely potential state, is incomplete, and he looked to the coming of an ecumenical faith, a fullness of faith that would unite not merely different Christian bodies, for Christianity should be capable of existing in a variety of forms in the universal church, but also the partial truths of all the heresies and 
all the humanistic creative activity of modern man as a religious experience consecrated in the spirit. A new Christianity is approaching, a new mysticism which will be deeper than religions and ought to unite them. For there is a great spiritual brotherhood to which not only the churches of East and West belong, but also all those whose wills are directed toward God and the divine, all in fact who aspire to some form of spiritual elevation. That is to say, people of every religion, sect, and religious ideology. He predicted the advent of a, a new and final revelation. The new age of the Holy Spirit, resurrecting the prediction of Joachim of Flory. I'm going to wait to see if, if, if John corrects me on that. Floris, Flory. The 12th century Latin monk who saw the two ages of the Father, Old Testament, and the Son, New Testament, giving way to a final third age of the Holy Spirit. Berdyayev. 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 Okay, there we go. Berdyayev. Berdyayev writes, The world is moving towards a new spirituality and a new mysticism. In it, there will be no more of the ascetic worldview. Quote, The success of the movement toward Christian unity presupposes a new era in Christianity itself, a new and deep spirituality, which means a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There is clearly nothing whatever in common between these super-ecumenist fantasies and Orthodox Christianity, which Berdyayev, in fact, despised. Yet anyone aware of the religious climate of our times will see that these fantasies, in fact, correspond to one of the leading currents of contemporary religious thought. Berdyayev does, not, does indeed seem to be a prophet, or rather to have been sensitive to a current of religious thought and feeling which was not so evident in his day, but has become almost dominant today. Everywhere one hears of a new movement of the spirit, and now a Greek Orthodox, everywhere one hears of a new movement of the spirit, and now a Greek Orthodox priest, Father Eusebius Stefano, invites Orthodox Christians to join this movement when he writes of the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our day. Elsewhere in the same publication, March 1972, the associate editor Ashenin invokes not merely the name, but also the very program of Berdyayev. Quote, we recommend the writings of Nicholas Berdyayev, the great spiritual prophet of our age. This spiritual genius is the greatest theologian of spiritual creativeness. Now the cocoon of orthodoxy has been broken. God's divine logos is leading his people to a new understanding of their history and their mission in him. The logos is the herald of this new age, of the new posture of orthodoxy. And I think here he's saying the logos, meaning the publication he's writing for, is the herald of this new age of the new posture of orthodoxy. The present book. All of this constitutes the background of the present book, which is a study of the new religious spirit of our times that underlies and gives inspiration to the dialogue with new Christian religions. The first three chapters offer a general approach to non-Christian religions and their radical difference from Christianity, both in theology and in spiritual life. The first chapter is a theological study of the God of the Near Eastern religions, with which Christian ecumenists hope to unite on the basis of monotheism. The second concerns the most powerful of the Eastern religions, Hinduism, based on a long personal experience which ended in the author's conversion from Hinduism to Orthodox Christianity. It also gives an interesting appraisal of the meaning for Hinduism of the dialogue with Christianity. The third chapter is a personal account of the meeting of an Orthodox priest monk with an Eastern miracle worker, a direct confrontation of Christian and non-Christian spirituality. The next four chapters are specific studies of some of the significant spiritual movements of the 1970s. Chapters four and five examine the new religious consciousness with particular reference to the meditation movements, which now claim many Christian followers and more and more ex-Christians. Chapter six looks at the spiritual implications of a seemingly non-religious phenomenon of our times, which is helping to form the new religious consciousness even among people who think they are far from any religious interest. The seventh chapter discusses at length the most controversial religious movement among Christians today, the charismatic revival, and tries to define its nature in the light of orthodox spiritual doctrine. In the conclusion, the significance and goal of the new religious consciousness are discussed in the light of the Christian prophecy concerning the last times. The religion of the future, to which they point, is set forth and contrasted with the only religion which is irreconcilably, irreconcilably in conflict with it, true Orthodox Christianity. The signs of the times as we approach the fearful decade of the 1980s are all too clear. Let Orthodox Christians and all who wish to save their souls in eternity 
take heed and act. You know, it's very interesting. It's, it's again, it's funny to see we approach the fearful decade of the 1980s because a lot of us now look back at the 1980s and it's like, oh, that great time. <laughs> um, and I was born in the 80s. I'm born toward the end of the 80s, but uh, I've always enjoyed, I've always really identified with 80s culture, 80s movies, 80s music, um, and then the 90s as well. Um, but it's interesting. You see these charts sometimes of, of especially financial charts that show a drastic, sudden uh, change in the 70s. You see it in, in, in Peter Thiel's uh, observation about innovation in atoms versus bits. He points out that we've basically stagnated since the late 60s, early 70s. The late 70s is when the U.S. left the gold standard. And of course, any good Orthodox libertarians will say, well, that's where everything changed. That's why the... Um, you know, that's when the, the financial uh, undergirding of the, of the society was really pulled out and everything began collapsing from that point. Um, you also have, so you have like the, the hippies of the 1960s that were um, the, the hippie movement that overlapped with a lot of, uh, or didn't overlap, but it involved a lot of, uh, of drug use of especially psychedelic drug use. Um, you had the, the coming of age. That's the kind of the coming of age generation from like 1965 to, uh, 1980 ish is kind of the coming of age period for the boomer generation who were, uh, very, uh, they grew up in this time of great, uh, wealth and prosperity and hope and expectation and, and, uh, kind of had the, they didn't have to live through the wars. They didn't have to live through the depression. Uh, technology was exploding. So they had a kind of a particular psychology as they came of age. They was very much informed by the, the changing times. You have the advance of, of uh, like if you listen to music, the way music progresses from the 50s through the 60s into the 70s into the 80s. Um, it's obvious that the like 1965 to 1973 kind of would be the so 1965 would have been the end of Vatican II. Um, and you've got obviously the uh, um, going to the moon at the end of the at the end of the 60s. Um, you have the the um, uh, Bretton Woods and the Bretton Woods system, 1972, I think that was. Um, JFK assassinated in 1963. Um, there's kind of a, a collection of different things that were all happening there. So like 19, maybe even go to the, to like JFK's assassination in 1963. So like 1963 to 1973 is kind of was, was like a really big turning point in our nation's history, but really global history because it's a global empire. And it's just fascinating that you have this, you have Father Seraphim there commenting in real time as he's living through that really crucial era. Era, He's sitting there, he's, he's sensing the spirit of the age at work. He's recognizing it. He's, he's aware of it. He's picking up on it. And he's writing what's happening. It's wild now people talking about, you know, the stuff in, with, with orthodoxy, even today you have uh you know what happened with the with the greeks with uh, elpidophorus and uh you have um i'm talking about the the baptizing the 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 child of the gay couple um there's a lot of these different scandals that you know they're, they're properly scandals but um it's fascinating thinking that 50 or 60 years ago you had this kind of thing influencing orthodoxy and has been since then um, so yeah, there's, there's a, there's a time of trouble coming. I think I'm going to cut it off here for, for the day. Um, we'll just start with section one with the monotheistic religions. Do we have the same God that non-Christians have? Um, we're going to go, we've got a, a thunderstorm coming here pretty soon and, and we wanted to get Eastwood out to the pool this afternoon. So I'm going to go take my family. We're going to go over to the pool and, uh, we're going to enjoy that. So thank you guys for listening in on the, the first 
the first episode of the live reading of Orthodoxy and the Religion of the Future by Father Seraphim Rose. And I think I'll I think I'll probably be able to stream tomorrow. Um, but you can just follow me on Twitter at Real Kingpilled, or you can join the the Kingpilled Discord, and you'll get the the, the notification of when I'll be going live again. So uh, appreciate you guys. Again, like, share, subscribe, do all the YouTube stuff. Um, helps me out, helps the channel out, helps us grow this and get this get this content in front of more eyes, more people. So thank you for you guys here who are in the live chat, and I'll see you guys.